Hi, guys, and welcome to the very first in a series of book profile episodes. Pretty much the number one question that I get from listeners is, what are you reading right now in terms of Titanic? And I want to talk about some of the things that I'm reading, some of the new scholarship with you. And these episodes will likely resemble regular episodes in the sense that I'm also researching around the books and hoping to get the authors on the pod as well. And in the case of this first one, I did just that, which is incredible. Like I've mentioned before, I firmly, firmly, more than anything, believe that history should be written in a way that is accessible and intriguing. And my first book that I'm featuring does just that, while also cracking open some of the Titanic historiography in a brand new way. When we imagine Titanic's sinking, we imagine the stern on its end in the water, the last of its lights flickering as the final plunge begins, and then nothingness, darkness. We imagine the ship out in the North Atlantic on its own, and once it goes beneath the water, just the people in the lifeboats, completely alone and desolate. This darkly romantic vision of this scene is rooted in so much Titanic mythology, a mythology that began (laughs) immediately after the sinking to build. That this idea that this is some kind of fate out there in the frigid water. But author William Hazelgrove has written a book that challenges some of the most ingrained parts of this Titanic mythology, including the idea that Titanic was alone out there on the night of April 14th and 15th, 1912. As his book, 160 Minutes, The Race to Save the RMS Titanic, lays out, the story of Titanic is actually also a story of an intense rescue mission in which many ships receive Titanic's call for help and in the subsequent minutes and hours become part of a morality play, as one might say, and as many have written, that is more human and much darker than we all have previously imagined or notably wanted to imagine. Two ships, in fact, floated in the same ice field that night as Titanic, both likely under 20 miles away, and neither one went to Titanic. I'm L.A. Beatles, and welcome back to Unsinkable, the Titanic podcast. This is the race to save the Titanic with a special guest, author William Hazelgrove. All right, guys, I have an incredible interview with the author, William Hazelgrove, to share with you. And that's going to be the bulk, the meat of this episode, I promise. But bear with me for just a bit here on the front end, because I want to walk you through a little bit about why the book 
was special for me. I want to walk you through a little bit of a summary and an outline so you have a sense of what we're discussing and some of the major players, particularly if you haven't read the book yet. I highly, highly recommend that you order the book. And I don't think it necessarily matters which order you do things in. I think you can listen to this episode and then read it. I think that's fine. And he and I discuss a lot of the important layers of his work, but there's obviously so much. And I think that once you hear the interview, you're (laughs) going to want to pick up the book. So first things first is actually, let me mention one thing. So I live in Texas Hill Country. And when we get the winds picking up as they are now in our little bit of winter, we call winter when it's 55 degrees, (laughs) but the winds are kicking up and I think you're going to be able to hear them a little bit. I have done my best to pad the room. The interview with William Hazelgrove was done a couple of days ago, so these sounds won't be on that. The sound quality of that interview is fantastic. So if you hear some howling wind on this intro part, I apologize and please excuse that. So it was really um, important moment for me as a Titanic researcher, as a Titanic historian, when I cracked open this book, because for a long time, I have felt that I might be a little bit alone in some of my efforts to widen and broaden the Titanic historiography to question some of the given sort of, you know, mythos around the history. And you may be questioning why I'm using the word mythology so much. So I want to give an example of what a Titanic mythology is and why I want to break it down and why other authors might want to as well. And you know, I talk a lot about race and gender and class on this podcast. I'm a historian, so that's what I do. But I want to read you a quote from an early part of the book from uh, William Hazelgrove's book. So here's what a Titanic myth is, and this is a direct quote. He says, quote, but let's start with the Titanic myth that has been handed us. It goes like this. The band played nearer my God to thee, while the white Anglo-Saxon Protestant inheritors of male privilege, nay, the titans of their time, the Guggenheims, the Vanderbilts, gloriously threw down the gauntlet for all that was good and decent in the world of white male privilege and saw off their wives and daughters in lifeboats before having a final cigar. So that's what I mean when I say a Titanic myth, right? And then within that one sentence from this book, there is so much that we can break down. Within this one sentence, there's the myth of the band playing on and what song they played, which is hotly debated. There is the Guggenheim myth of him with his brandy and dressed up ready to go down with the ship. There is this idea of the heroism of the first class males, people like Astor, people like Guggenheim. So I think that that reading that one sentence gives you a sense of this is why I felt a, a kindred spiritness, for lack of a better term, with this book when I opened it, which is this this is where I want to start from. Let's talk about what some of these myths are. Let's talk about what the historiography has been. And then let's let's 
crack it open (laughs) and not necessarily to knock down out of malice, but to question why we've looked at the story of Titanic sinking in the ways that we have, what has informed how we've viewed them and how might we view them differently and more progressively as we move forward as writers and readers and researchers of Titanic. So there you go. There's a kind of a sense of what I mean when I say mythology. So I was incredibly excited when I realized what a fresh perspective and take this book is. And he and I talk in the interview a little bit about why that is. But what you need to know heading into the interview, especially if you haven't read the book yet, is that Hazel Grove comes at this with a new organizational structure and a new sort of core uh, storytelling device, which is that he focuses on the wireless operations. This idea that a huge network of wireless operators on ships in the North Atlantic, all across the East Coast, all across the world, are once the Titanic hits that iceberg, well, once Jack Phillips and Harold Bride, the operators on Titanic, start to send out these signals for help, this initiates a rescue mission, this 160 minutes that these ships have to try to get to Titanic and get to her passengers. And the wireless story of Titanic has never been given enough of its own due in terms of just, (laughs) I mean, I I, I don't know, I've read so many Titanic books over the last few years, especially, and a lot of the new ones. And there's just never enough of a focus in on what a, what a crucial part of the story this is. That it is only because of the wireless system, the Marconi wireless system, that the 710 people that did survive Titanic survived it. And it is only because of this wireless system that we even know what happened to Titanic. And and we talk about that a little bit in the interview. So the book is organized, great structure, actually pretty thrilling, this countdown structure of every chapter tells you how many minutes at this point in the story that there is until the ship goes all the way under. So great organization and and a super fresh perspective. Some other basics you need to know heading into the interview. We mentioned the Californian. Uh, The ship was a Leyland Line ship, and it was very notoriously um, in the ice field, standing, sort of floating still in the ice field, very close to Titanic. It's been shown it's very close. When you hear the tales, and I've talked about it a lot, of Captain Smith, Officer Boxhall, countless other officers, countless passengers who survived mentioned the light that they saw in the distance that they thought was a ship coming to rescue them, this light that Captain Smith wanted them to row to. This is the Californian. There is a notorious exchange between the wireless operators on Titanic and the Californian's wireless operator before he goes to bed. Many of you may know about that as well. But that's the Californian. It's sitting in the ice field. There's 
been a lot of debate about how far away it was from Titanic. We'll talk about that in the interview, but that's the Californian and its captain is Stanley Lord. We also mentioned the Mount Temple. That is another ship that Hazel Grove shows was very close to Titanic and was part of the rescue mission. And that is the one that attempts to get to Titanic and stop short of actually reaching her. So those are the two main ships that we mention. And the captain of the temple is Captain James Moore. So in the interview, you're going to hear those names a lot. Stanley Lord, Captain Moore, Temple Californian. I just wanted to make sure that that was straight. Stanley Lord is the captain of the Californian and James Moore is the captain of the Mount Temple ship. Also, you're going to hear just the last name Lord thrown around a lot because because we also talk a, quite a bit about Walter Lord, who is the author of A Night to Remember, uh, obviously the most well-known book ever written about Titanic, and of course the inspiration for the 19, 1958 film A Night to Remember that we've discussed a lot on the pod as well. So Walter Lord, author of A Night to Remember, Stanley Lord, <laughs> captain of the Californian. It is odd that this name is twice uh, so important in this story. But I wanted to make sure that you had that clear and that it wasn't confusing. I think if you kind of visualize that, those two kind of prongs um, in your head, then it won't be confusing. But I did just at least want to point that out. And also while we're on the topic of Walter Lord, I want to say that in this interview, we discuss how his work was really pivotal in creating some of the mythology of Titanic that this book does crack open. And we talk about why it's important to question and to uh, broaden uh, the themes involving the history of Titanic. So that may ruffle some feathers. And if you have feedback on that, I want to hear it just like I want to hear feedback on every aspect of every episode I ever do. But I want to say that that conversation we have is not out of malice in any way, or or meant to take away from how crucial Walter Lord's work is in terms of the cultural history of Titanic. And Walter Lord is married to the cultural history of Titanic, and, and that cannot be undone. So I just wanted to, to you know, take a moment to say that. I know Walter Lord is very important to a lot of listeners and to a lot of Titanic researchers and authors. All right, I would love to share, as we head into the interview, I'd love to share one more quote so that you can kind of get into the mood of thinking about kind of a darker take on the humanity of the sinking of, of Titanic. Definitely be prepared to unpack the narrative of heroism a bit, to question some of the narratives of heroism around Titanic. Definitely be prepared as you listen to this and as you read the book, if you haven't already, to... <laughs> kind of question, kind of put yourself on the decks in a new way. Because as William Hazelgrove points out, the narrative of the sinking of Titanic is in many ways a quote, primitive, naked, primal impulse to survive rather than the gilded patina of heroic Episcopalian men who suddenly grew a conscience after exploiting millions during the post-Civil War industrialization of America, end quote. So 
think about it. Think about how all of the branches of this tree of American and world history meet here in the Titans up above, in the poor third class passengers below, in the captains of the ships that are called to rescue Titanic and its passengers, in the officers on Titanic, the captain himself, all of the people that are involved in what Hazel Grove so astutely points out as the first sort of real-time unfolding disaster because of these wireless operations, that there is a, a darker side to the very human actions, reactions, emotions that played out that night. And it's really, really important to talk about them, to be quite blunt. So I hope you enjoy this interview. We get to cover so many different corners of the Titanic story and how his work intersects with it. It was also just a wonderful experience to meet William Hazelgrove and albeit it was over a, a video call, but hey, that's what we have these days and it was fantastic. I am grateful and excited to be able to bring you conversations like this with authors. And I hope this is going to be the first of many to come. All right, here I am with national bestselling author, William Hazelgrove, prolific writer of over 20 books. And we mention a couple of them in the episode. So I think you'll get a little bit of a sense of, of some other things that he has written about. And we also mentioned his upcoming book releasing on February 15th called The Brilliant Con of Cassie Chadwick, Greed in the Gilded Age, which I, this is right up my alley. So I'm very excited. All right, guys, enjoy the interview and let me know what you think. And also please Remember, if you've got a couple of extra minutes and you're enjoying the pod, rate and review on Apple. All right, guys, here we go. All right, William Hazelgrove, thank you for taking the time to come on the podcast. This is uh, such a lovely treat for my listeners. This is, like I mentioned, the first in a series of book-based episodes that we're going to do on Unsinkable. And I just would, first of all, love to hear, you know, you're a prolific author. You've written on so many important topics in American history. How did you get to Titanic? Because you're not traditionally a Titanic person, right? So how did you get to this Titanic moment? Yeah, you know, I'm not, I'm not a Titanic person. Um, you know, I write narrative nonfiction, obviously, which is what everybody reads now. And um, I'd written 10 novels before. And so when I switched over, I started with Madam President, The Secret Presidency of Edith Wilson. And, you know, she ran the country from 1919 to 1921. And so I sort of started this thing of digging into history. And, you know, we're living in a time when history is being demythologized. Um, statues are coming down. All sorts of things are going on. Um, so, you know, what I do is I'm not your traditional historian. I'm more of a person who looks at the facts, things that are in plain sight. You know, I don't have, you know, uh, manuscripts coming out of, you know, old trunks in the attic or anything like that. You know, like, oh, this just revealed this, this. What I do is I look at it with a lot of source material and then I say, okay, uh, this is the way I see it. This is 
common sense, this is the way I see it. Like going back to Madam President, she was the first woman president who ran the country for two years from 1919 to 1921. A lot of people knew this. I was just the first person to say it. So let's go to Titanic. Titanic, love it. Saw the movie many times. Love the movie. You know, I always wanted to write something about it, but I was like, man, you know, this has been done. There's, you know, what kind of way into it? Uh, so I started to focus on the wireless operators, Jack Bride and Harold Phillips, or Jack Phillips, Harold Bride. I started with them because I was really fascinated with wireless telegraphy as a new technology that was coming out at that moment. Uh, so sort of like the internet um, in the 80s and the personal computer where a lot of people didn't understand it. Uh, a lot of people thought it was a gadget, a gizmo. But, you know, this was a very big deal with Titanic. So from there, I realized there was this huge rescue operation. And this is not something that we heard about. You know, we always heard Carpathia came, plucked the people out of the boats and left. Mm -hmm. Um, But we didn't know that there was, you know, 10 to 12 ships that turned around and started immediately for Titanic. So name of my book, 160 Minutes, The Race to Save the Armistice Titanic, is because after they hit the iceberg, they had two hours and 40 minutes. To, to get there. So literally the race was on. And it, you know from reading my book that it's all broken up as I count down the minute. Mm-hmm. And so this was really a revelation to me where it's like, oh, so there was this huge rescue operation because of wireless technology, because the Titanic had a set that could go 2,000 miles at night. You know, yeah. it bounced off the ionosphere and bounced into New York and all these other places. This was my way in. And then during it, and, you know, as I, I researched and, and followed the sort of logical path, I came to realize that during this rescue operation, there were two ships that absolutely could have grabbed the people off that ship, Titanic, while she was sinking, before she sank at 2.20 a.m. Mm-hmm. And we would have had much less loss of life. And, you know, you and I were talking before the recording about people reacting to this. Well, <laughs> when I had a two-page spread come out in the Daily Express in London, which uh-huh. the British are very big on Titanic, and you wouldn't believe the emails I got. So, I can only imagine. Yeah, yeah. I mean, people yeah. are very up in arms because there is Titanic mythology. There is Titanic dogma. There's Titanic, uh, you know, obsessed people who believe, you know, what was handed down to us, when you talk about where it all came from, is gospel. But from where I sit, it was like, no, everybody could have been rescued if it were not for human failing. Absolutely. I, I have to say, I love what you did. I love that you're not a Titanic, quote unquote, person that came to this as a writer, a researcher, a historian. You have the tool set. You had the tool set, but you came in not as a traditional Titanic person that's been steeped in all of this, like you said, sort of gospel mythology for decades and decades, which not to discount authors that have written on it for decades and decades, they've done so much amazing work. But I think the key, but I do think the key thing you did is you break down these two big myths that are (laughs) ironclad. One, which is that the Walter Lord book is this text that can't be spoken out against, which I think is crazy because Walter Lord even, I mean, there are quotes from Walter Lord that he understood the fallibility of memory, right? Like he even, there are quotes I've read from him where he's even saying, you know, these are things being remembered this many years later. I don't think that he would necessarily want us to not 
question or keep researching or keep adding to the historiography. I think he would want us to. So that has always kind of driven me crazy. So you break that down, right? And then also this idea that Titanic sinking is somehow faded, but you have this great line, and I'm going to read it if you don't mind, that it was, you know, quote, not preordained. It was ordained by the failings of men in critical moments. And I think this is what you do. You add a very human element to this story that nobody ever wants to talk about, which is the fear the 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 reactions that people probably had in these moments that were more human than we would like to admit, and so yeah, I would love to hear you just speak about um, how it felt to kind of break down <laughs> that mythology. You have the Astors, the Guggenheims, the Strausses, these this Edwardian scene, right? All, everything from Lord's book. So yeah, just kind of walk me through your research process and and how it felt to kind of knock some of that down. And if you don't mind talking about it, you know, not mentioning names, but if you have had backlash, what has that sort of felt like? And and yeah, just kind of speak a little bit more to that because yeah. I think it's it's crucial what you've done. So right, let's let's talk about the mythology. Mythology is the great white male, um, great um, Episcopal male. I'm an Episcopalian, right? I'm an old wasp. My family came over to Virginia in 1665, so I know these people. Mm-hmm. And <laughs> the Titanic, the things handed down to us through history is people having a shot of brandy, a cigar, sending out their wives and children, the first class, into the boats. Okay, so that's what's been handed to us. But the reality is is a, a lot different because, as you said, you have to go into Titanic to buy off on the mythology that it was preordained. It's fake. So it's a Greek tragedy. So that, that Titanic was alone out there, that there was nothing anybody could do. And so then this, this elevates. And one reason it was elevated at that time was hard to believe there hadn't been any kind of tragedy on this scale before. You know, we were steeped in blood in the 20th century. But coming out of the Edwardian era, um, you know, Titanic was, is a uh, dividing line between the sort of dreamy, gilded age Edwardian area and then the, the sort of mass of carnage of the 20th century. You know, Jack Thayer, the 17-year-old uh, who wrote a book in 1940, he said, before Titanic, life had a Grecian cemetery. The headlines were all about the same size. Uh, the airplane wasn't an instrument of death. Most people didn't have a car. Life went on. After Titanic, everything changed. So he mm-hmm. saw the dividing line. And I think that was a very accurate depiction. So when I come to the scene, to me, I am like, okay, first of all, Titanic's not alone. Titanic, in mm-hmm. fact, surrounded by ships, as you know, reading the book. There's literally 12 ships that turned around to go, go after her. Now, okay, so now you're saying, all right, so Titanic didn't have to sink. In fact, there is a possibility people could be saved. So so then that sort of opens up this whole can of worms to, well, why weren't they saved then? Why weren't they saved? Well, there's there's a lot of reasons. First of all, let's talk about the Californian and, and uh, Walter Lord or, mm-hmm. or Captain Lord there. And, oh, I'm going to jump back to A Night to Remember. You're absolutely right in saying that when Walter Lord went out to write that book, copywriter in New York in the 50s. He interviewed all the people. And, you know, it's not that he was wrong in his book, which is, by the way, is only 112 pages. Exactly. Yeah. We all thought, oh, this is a big tomb. It's a novel, okay? It's a novel. And and uh, it's not footnoted, not one footnote, nothing. Not at all. And nobody questions that. No, no, yeah. no. <laughs> and so, uh, you know, so he did talk to these people. He did write down what they say, and he put it in this book. And it's not that he was wrong. 
It's just where he set his camera. It's where he decided to tell the story. Mm-hmm. With the sort of a voyeuristic, you are there, right? So it's a great thrill ride. But as you said, um, this became the floor for every history that followed. So here's Lord's book, and then historians would always sort of build on that and go up. Mm-hmm. You can find traces of Lord's book through every book. Including and they're mine. still doing it, which is why your book, sorry to cut in, but your book is so refreshing because even, and I won't name them, but, but right. even very recent books, this is still what people are doing. People with academic training, people with, it's it's like nobody, yours is one of the first I've read to do this at all. Everyone still starts from that base, not a different base, but you're starting yeah. from a different base. Yeah. Exactly. I mean, because I don't come to this as a Titanic person. I come to this as a, somebody who looks at it logically and says, okay, this is how I see it. So I don't have any prejudices at all. This is like, okay, here's, Here's the way I said. All right, so what did I see? We have the Californian, Captain Lord. He's 10 miles away, right? Titanic sinking. Um, Captain Lord decides I'm not going into the ice field because let's talk about this. Titanic didn't hit an iceberg. It hit an ice field. So it's literally surrounded by ice, right? Mm -hmm. So Lord hits it and he goes, I'm not going any further. His wireless man goes to bed. He goes to bed. The uh, officers on the bridge say, you know, well, there's this strange ship and it's lit up like a Christmas tree. We think it's mm-hmm. a Titanic. Lord's like, no, nah, no, it's probably a Russian fishing trawler. And he actually though stops the wireless man and says, hey, is there anything in the area? Only Titanic. But he still says, no, it's not Titanic. Lord goes to bed. The officers on the bridge continue watching this strange ship that looks really weird because it looks like one side's out of the water. And then they start to see rockets, white rockets going off. Rockets at sea mean only one thing. No matter what color they are, you're sinking, come fast, come, we're in great distress. Lord goes, no, what color are the rockets? They're like, well, they're white. Well, let me know if it changes, which means absolutely nothing, right? Yeah, I know. Yeah. And now it gets worse. Now it gets worse because people on Titanic are getting into the the lifeboats. And lifeboats are very substantial, by the way. This will be relevant when we talk on. And so Captain uh, Smith says to him, See that light, see that light, row toward that light. Row toward that. That's a ship. They will pick you up. Now, Lord tells him that. Second officer of light toward tells him that. Jack Thayer's mother writes about it. Jack Thayer writes about it. Lawrence mm-hmm. Beasley writes about it. They all see this. So ship. many people do. Yes. Yeah. So yeah. so this is not, you know, William Hazelgrove going whacka doodle saying, oh, you know, <laughs> this ship. This is all in the accounts. This is in plain mm-hmm. sight. All the historians have read this stuff. Yeah. So these these people are literally rowing toward a ship, okay? So so this breaks the whole. We're all alone. We've got to go down. You know, it's and and again, one reason the mythology began of the the great white male. You know, the great Christian patriarchal white male uh, having his brilliant moment is because. The newspapers didn't have a lot of information at that time, so they had to create a sort of mythology around a narrative, yeah. yeah. To also justify this carnage on this scale that they hadn't seen before. So back to the ship, these these people are rowing toward this this ship. The officers on board, and by the way, Captain Lord is very, very imperious. He doesn't really believe in wireless. He feels like, you know. The captain's word is law. And so these guys don't cross them. They keep going. They're, they're, the rockets are still going. It looks really strange. Nope. Nope. Don't worry about it. So they sit there and literally watch Titanic sink, right? 
And most people don't realize this. And 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 I know you're a fan of the movie, yeah. as you mentioned. And I, I mean, I will, you know, I kind of have so many questions. Maybe we'll try to incorporate several. But, you know, sure. this is something with the Cameron film. You know, he cuts these scenes out. He shoots some of these Californian scenes. I don't know if you know that on the, and they're in the deleted oh, scenes. On, yeah. yeah. So he shot some scenes with Californian and he also shot more scenes with the with Bride and Phillips. I, I'm a total nerd about the movie, so I know way too much. But uh, but it's interesting to me that he cut those out. And that ties in with a question I have, which is, why do you think that this low-hanging fruit of the story of the Californian, which absolutely is nearby, some people have tried to say that it wasn't, it absolutely was. And it seems like it would be low-hanging fruit for historians to create drama. I mean, you've got a ship right here that could have saved all these people. So why did no one ever take this low-hanging fruit? Why do you think, do you think it's because it's so much a story of kind of male failure? I mean, do you think that that's why, like why in, you know, over a hundred years of writing this history, has no one ever really zoned in on this except you know, they leave it to the conspiracy theorists. I mean, a lot of, unfortunately, a lot of what you hear about the Californian will end up on a podcast about, you know, the switch theory or something, which is yeah. crazy. But, it, you know, so people have clumped it in with conspiracy theories, but it's not a conspiracy theory. So why do you think that is? It just in well, a psychological sense. Yeah, I think, I think also, you know, going back to the movie, Cameron probably cut it out because it would take away from the Greek tragedy of the ship sinking of uh, you know Jack and uh, Kate character going Rose, down. Yeah. You know, if you sat there and said, "Oh, there's a ship over there," uh, maybe they'll come. Well, also the whole movie beers, right? So dramatically, yeah. it would have been a mess for him. But a good point. why yeah. haven't why hasn't history treated it? And, and we also have the the Mount Temple. We can talk about that too. Well, because if you own the can of worms, then you you veer away from people acting the way they should to people acting in this very dark, shameful way. Because, you know, once you start to say that, then you start to pull away all the credibility of the whole Titanic story, which, all right, so on the far side of the ice field, it's a good place to segue, um, there's the Mount Temple. Mm -hmm. Captain Moore, again, he's very close. He gets there, and and he's literally maybe five to seven miles away, and he hits the ice field. He told passengers, look, don't go up top. Don't go up top. It's, you know, we don't want you to go up top. But a bunch of them sneak up there anyway. Of course they did. Yeah. And they come out in this brutal cold. And it's, you know, brutally cold that night. But it's also clear as a bell. Just crystal clear. And the water's like a mill pond. And they see Titanic, a ship, sinking, shooting off rockets. They're five miles away. Mm-hmm. The crew sees them. They're like, why aren't we going in? Moore refuses to go into that ice field. Okay. Now. What's he do? He ends up backing away. And, and how do we know this is true? How do we know that the California, we're, we talk more about Californian, um, is definitely true. But how do we know more stories true? This is one that a lot of people haven't heard. Well, because once they come in, all the passengers, all the crew talk to various newspapers. They all told different accounts. So, so, you know, the conspiracy people can go, oh, this is just, you know, crazy conspiracy stuff. But, but you cannot take all these different people, line up their stories at a time when, you know, communication was spotty at best and have all those stories line up. Canadian papers, American papers, they all said the same thing. They saw this ship there. Mm-hmm. So, so once you start to say, okay, there was a ship here and a ship here, 
Well, then the narrative Titanic really switches from this ship, these people were doomed, and you know, this the people who uh, acted in great chivalrous ways, uh, you know, all that starts to sort of get deflated to, oh, there was two men, two captains who were very close who did not go into that. Actively did not. Yeah. yeah. And, and could have, could have gone in. I think you're a hundred percent right. And I think, you know, the, which also makes the story of Rostrin, Captain Rostrin on the Carpathia, even more, <laughs> even more powerful. And, and most people are pretty familiar with that story and him. And I actually would do an episode on him at some point because there's so much <laughs> to cover, right. but yeah, I think you're absolutely right about both the Californian and the temple and the temple. Actually, I did not know a whole lot about, about which is saying a lot because I've been a Titanic person for over 20 years, ever since I was a kid. And so I think that there's I think you're right. I think there's a very definitive reason why we don't hear that story. It doesn't fit in with the narrative of John Jacob Astor on the deck with his brandy at the, you know, Guggenheim with his brandy at the end. So one thing that really struck me was your, and you mentioned it a little bit at the beginning, wireless technology being sort of the, you know, the new thing of the day, right? The bride and Phillips are representative of this young group of men that are learning this new technology. It's almost like, you know, coders on the internet in the early days, something like that. And I really think that is a great analogy. And I think readers will really enjoy that you know, those segments of the book, when you sort of compare that, that really opened even my brain in a new way. With someone like Captain Smith, do you think, I really liked what you said that, you know, for him, and you mentioned it again with with Captain Lord, this is newfangled technology. (laughs) And he may have thought, oh, wireless is on board, but I still am in charge of this ship. I'm still going to base my decisions on navigation, on my officers. Can you speak to that a little bit? Like, do you do you think that really affected how he viewed the ice warnings, how he acted on them? Do you think that that viewpoint was a big, you know, kind of a a block in Captain Smith's mind? And I mean, we'll never know, obviously. But what are your kind of thoughts on that? Um, yeah, I mean, thirty year man, final voyage, capstone of his career. He's on there with Bruce Ismay, this incredible ship, which was the space shuttle of their time. Let's make a good run across. Let's get let's get there quickly, you know. So they're going full bore. All the all the boilers are lit up. Mm-hmm. They hit they hit an iceberg, but after twelve ice warnings, and he's still going full blast. He's doing 23, 24 knots. This technology, the the wireless operators, Jack Phillips and Harold Bright, don't work for White Star. They work for Marconi. Mm-hmm. They speak their own language. They have their own sort of world, much like again, early computer nerds, right? Nobody really talks to them. And, you know, to Captain Smith, it's it's a gadget for the rich, for the first class. What does wireless mostly do? It sends messages for the rich, right? It sends, uh, it, they download from Cape Race and other places information. Titanic has huge printing presses. They make their own newspaper in the morning. So you, over your, you know, croissant and coffee, you can read about Chicago Cubs. Right, so so this is how Marconi makes his money. He doesn't make it from ice warnings. This is ancillary. You know, these 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 ice warnings coming in are haphazardly taken to the bridge. Uh, you compare that to the pneumatic tubes that take the actual messages from passengers. That's very streamlined. Why? Because that's the money maker, right? But the ice warnings float up. People stick them on a board. Maybe they don't. 
it's up to their discretion whether or not to even take them seriously. But they're continually coming in. And Smith famously puts one in his pocket. Ismay asks for it. Ismay shows it around to the, you know. To uh, Marion Thayer and her group. Yeah, and, right. yeah. Look up, look at this technology. And then, yeah. you know, Smith's like, can I have that back? He takes it back. <laughs> you know, I mean, but, you know, the great irony is while they're parlaying around this ice warning, they're just going full speed into the ice field, which was de rigueur, which was standard operating procedure was yeah. to go full speed through the ice field, right? After they hit it, Smith realizes, after you know, Andrews tells him, yeah, she, she will founder, famously in the movie, right? And uh, he knows for damn sure it'll be at the bottom of the Atlantic in a couple hours. He was only off, not by much. He then goes down to the wireless shack and says, so now CQD. Because he realizes then that this butterfly sitting on the, you know, this massive ship, which is really what wireless was. It was just this little gadget, right? On this mm-hmm. massive ship. Everything depended on this little teeny technology now. Everything, right? And so they start sending it out. And probably that moment, way too late, he realized the value of, of this technology. But in his defense, most people, a lot of people on ships, McConey had put his set on a lot of ships, still saw it as sort of a gadget. They still didn't really take it that seriously. and. What a gadget. These signals will go bouncing off um, into New York, uh, famously, and you know, in my book, as you know, David Sarnoff is sitting on top of Wanamaker's mm-hmm. department store. Just, to some teenagers sitting yeah, at a yeah, table yeah. in yeah, the yeah. middle of the country. Yeah. yeah. So. Time, and he picks up the Titanic sinking. Four boys in New Jersey. They're, you know, and you have to understand, a wireless set was very cheap. You know, you, you could just get one, you know, and, and it was a hobby for a lot of people. They go out and string up their antenna on the roof and start picking up signals. And these four boys get together in New Jersey and uh, the parents have gone to bed and they're sitting around the, the dining room, the kitchen table. And it's a, you know, blustery kind of night. And they pick up the Titanic sinking. They run and tell their parents and their parents say, that's ridiculous. First of all, we don't believe the signals, but secondly, Titanic's unsinkable, which we can talk about. And, and yet they were right because why all this ended up in the newspapers. You know, all these accounts of people picking up. So what was happening? So many. Yeah, this was this was the first real-time disaster that, you know, we're used to now. If we see a shooting, the TV's on, it's real-time. This was the first real-time disaster hitting the United States and other places just serendipitously. And also to, you know, a little bit about this technology. This is the first occasion of sharing. You know, I said, oh, we're so sophisticated. We share this stuff all over the Internet. That's all wireless was about. It would go to one station, they'd blob it onto another station. Mm-hmm. So they would share it, right? So this was really the first uh, incident of sharing. So <clears throat> the technology was not taken seriously by a lot of the powers that be. It was not really understood. You know, kind of like Captain Smith, 30-year man, he's not going to act on it. He's not, he's, he diverted the ship a little, as I'm sure you know. He went a little further south, but not much. He didn't slow down. Mm-mm. And uh, bang, you know, he banged into it. And then it was all over. And then, it, and then he realized too late. You know, the only reason that what seven hundred and seventy people—I don't know the exact number—was picked up is is because of the wireless technology. That Jack Bride and Harold Phillips sat there, or Jack Phillips and Harold Bride sat there while the ship sinking. 
Yes, and this segues perfectly into another, I think, really important part of your book and of the and of how you conceptualize everything, which is that this is a success story in a lot of ways. And I think, you know, just like you're sort of what you're doing is kind of flipping the mythology in the sense that we're shining a light more on some of the maybe not as great human emotions and actions as some of the mythology would lead us to believe. But you're actually doing something on the positive side, we flip it over, which is that you know, obviously it is a tragedy, but the rescue of these 700 and, and so odd people is actually a miracle and a success story based on <laughs> what, you know, the, the work that Brian and Phillips are doing. Um, it's a success story of their work of wireless becoming something that's going to save tons of lives, you know, moving forward over many years. And, and so, yeah, speak a little bit about that. I mean, it's, we think of it only as a tragedy, but I just, I, I, I started to think about this as I was finishing your book that that is, and that's a new narrative to sort of wrap around and hold on to too, which is that in terms of the wireless story, Bride's a hero, Phillips is a hero, Rostrum's a hero, and that this is a success story. I think you did a great job of kind of opening up that line of thinking as well. Yeah, I mean, so two twenty a.m. Smith comes in and says, "Every man for yourself. Every it's every man, or actually about two a.m. Go ahead, you men, you've done your work uh, to you know Harold, Harold Bride and Jack Phillips. So they." are like, okay, but there's still power. So they stay at their post and they transmit literally until the power is flickering out and the ship's at a 45 degree angle and the water's coming in. Okay, so then into the water they go. Um, no boats obviously are left. Phillips dies pretty quickly and Harold Bride ends up under an Engelhart inverted uh, life bed in the water, right? Uh, he eventually crawls over to the top a little bit with... <laughs> 12 to 14 other men, which is a whole other story in itself. Where they're oh, yeah, that's a, They're, they're that's literally a, balancing on the thing, right? The Lytol or Gracie's on there. Right. It's a whole, that you could do a movie about that. Absolutely. absolutely. Yeah. He tells them. All right. So now they're all in the Atlantic. Um, and let's talk about this while we're at this, because we're at this juncture now. All right. So these 20 boats are literally facing Titanicus at six. Titanic sinks. Now you have 1,500 people in the water, 15 plus, 1,500 plus. And you have uh, this sound that is described like locusts on a summer night or a ball game when a, uh, a home run gets hit and the crowd roars. Mm -hmm. Or the worst is a long death moan all on the same pitch. That's the sound of 1,500 people, not drowning, but freezing to death, freezing to death. Mm -hmm. Um, calling out to each other, you know, that they love, you know, that I love you, I love you, this, this and that. And now you have the 20 people in the lifeboats. And by the way, the lifeboats are not dinghies. These are very substantial boats, heavily reinforced, called up to 75 people. And they sit high in the water. A few people say, we should go back. But they're shouted down. They said, you, we aren't going back. We'll, we'll get swamped. We'll die. So the darkest moment of Titanic, the exact inverse of the chivalry and honor that's been held up and, and you know, the, the courage of the people mm -hmm. is this moment where you have these first-class people primarily sitting in these boats with plenty of room. A lot of these boats were underloaded to the point where you had 20 people in a boat called 70 people or even. Or the, the you have the Duff, I, I can't remember what number it is, but the the boat with the Duff Gordons in it, they, it's them right. and a few crew, right? And they could have, I mean, they could have probably fit 40 to 50 more people in that boat, I think, oh, from what I've seen. Yeah. But nobody will go back. And so this is a really 
ugly moment um, that's glossed over in all the histories. Even in the movie, it wasn't really treated too much. You know, Molly Brown famously, of course, wants to go back. Um, she shouted down. Um, uh, two boats eventually go back, but everybody's pretty much dead. Six people they pick up. This is this. If, it's, if there's a triumvirate of the rescue operation, it would have been more Lord and the people in the boats. If everybody could have picked up a third, each person could have taken on 500 people or whatever. Mm-hmm. You know, so, yeah. so that would have covered the people, but they don't. And now they're sitting out there, right? So Titanic goes down. And what's strange about Titanic going down is that a lot of people thought there'd be all this debris and all these strange things. There wasn't. It just was gone. And the suction. Yeah. A lot, you hear that again and again in the you know the U.S. Senate hearings. I read those. And right. so I see that again and again that they were scared of the suction. But for, by all accounts, there was very little. Right. Very little, so, right. I mean, unless yeah. you were right on that ship when it went down, like light color had to deal with it. So it's gone. So now they're sitting there out in the North Atlantic. And you're right. The only thing they have is what Harold Bride and Jack Phillips did at this point. Mm-hmm. And Harold Bride lets everybody in. He goes, Carpathia is coming. She's coming. That's all they can hope for because they they will freeze to death out there. There's no doubt about it. And that might have kept some people alive. I mean, him t- being able to tell that to some people, that they may have been just teetering on that very edge, but knowing that might have kept a couple of people alive just with the hope of that knowledge, if you think about it, you know? so Absolutely, because the wind was beginning to kick up. The mill pond was starting to go away. They would have never been found. They would have no. never been found. There's no, no way. way. There's no sonar. There's no radar. There's nothing. They would have just been gone. You know, here's another thing to think about. Without wireless technology, we wouldn't have known what happened to Titanic. So Titanic would have just vanished. Yeah, I never thought about that. It's It's true. There'd be all this, you know, aliens came and took them, you know. They went to a room and they're still there, you know. I mean, yeah, Bermuda Triangle. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Right, right. I mean, you wouldn't, you wouldn't have known because that's what happened before wireless. Ships would sink and they'd just be gone. Mm-hmm. And so and people don't understand this. I this has come up before I, on on the pod, and I it's amazing. I mean, I, you know, as a historian, I know, that, but it surprises me that people don't realize this. But why would they if they've never studied it before? But yeah, the realization that prior to wireless, ships just disappeared. You know, and mm-hmm. it, when you tell somebody that, it's always kind of a look in their face, like, oh, you yeah. know, most people don't realize that was the case. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I mean. And let, you know, let's talk about Captain Rostrum because you know we brought. Oh yeah, him I do want to touch um, on him. Yeah, you know, he, he known as the Electric Spark. He's a pious man. Um, he immediately turns his ship around and starts dodging icebergs. Puts out extra lookouts, putting every bit of steam into the engines, taking away all the hot water and everything, heat from all those passengers, and is hell bent on getting there as fast as he can. And of course, he can't get there quick enough because he does arrive, you know, good 40, 50 minutes after she sinks, but he's able to pick the people up. So he's the other side of the teeter totter of the two men who acted in such a horrible fashion. Um, You know, he is this person who is held up afterward as the way we hope we all would act. He, if he had been one of those lifeboats, he would have gone in to try and get the people. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, it, it's sort of that whole concept of a hero. How how rare are they? And in this case, it seems like they were pretty rare. And you know, then you have the individual moments of heroism among the officers and things like that. But really, the overall takeaway, in it, and as you know, 
Captain Lord was pulled into the investigation and found guilty, Mm -hmm. found guilty by the United States Senate of not coming to the aid of Titanic. And then the British just crucified him in their investigation. He's then pushed off, you know, stripped of his command. And this creates what's called Lordites today. Lordites say uh, he was a scapegoat. This whole thing was just hung around his neck. And there was, you know, all sorts of other ships in the area that he saw that wasn't Titanic. There was the mystery ship. The mystery ship, the middle ship yeah, that was between. But, but as the British said, and again, this is, this is where you just go common sense. As the British said, there was only one ship out there shooting off rockets. That was the Titanic. And then Titanic. Once, in 1985, when Ballard found it, then, you know, the Lordites all kicked up again and said, aha, you know, it, it wasn't where they said it was, you know, it was further off. And stuff. But even still, you know, in the Senate, I, you know, his son petitioned the Senate to open up the investigation again. They opened it up that, a little yeah. and, and, you know, reviewed it. He was still the guy there. You know, his, his ship was still there. It was the ship they saw. It was the ship that people were rowing toward. You know, it was the ship that all his crew went and told newspapers said it was the ship that the the stokers from down below would go up and you know take a little air and they see titanic they're the ones they all saw it yeah they're the ones that went to the press first because he told lord when he came into new york he said don't talk to anybody well and this is all this is all lost with it ties back to at the beginning what we talked about with walter lord modern titanic historians treat his book as the bible but I, and actually, I had a great conversation about this with Stephen Schwenker. He is one of the producers on that new documentary, The Six, about the Chinese survivors. Hopefully, it'll be picked up by a streamer soon. I saw it, as, saw it as part of a film festival, but he was on the pod, and he made a really good point about this as well. But we were talking about the Chinese survivors right. and the third class experience. He said, you know, we have to go back to the whatever the most primary sources we can go back to are. And when you treat Walter Lord's text as the Bible, what you're missing is that backtrack moment to that the earliest sources. And mm-hmm. memory memory is always fallible. It's fallible five minutes after something happens. So no, no one retelling anything is ever going to be 100% correct. But, and I think this ties in with some of what we've been talking about, what you do is you go back to some of the sources that take us back to the initial moment. And I think what's lost in a lot of the modern historiography is that they start at Walter Lord instead of starting back in 1912. Because if you go back to the Senate hearings, and this is what Stephen Schwenkert says, you can't say that anything is fact, right? I mean, Lightoller might have been towing the right. company line. We can't say that anyone's memory is fact, but those are the closest that you're going to get to the moment of being on that mm-hmm. ship. And I do agree with him. The more that I read, I absolutely 100% agree. Or Harold Bride's testimony, which you've got you've got some of his primary source in the book, at the back of the book, which I thought was great. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. Anyway, yeah. lost my train of thought, but finally got back there. But yes. Yeah, so no, I think. Yeah, I mean, in, in the, you're right. The Senate testimony is very key because in there you have Lord trying to explain why he didn't go there and then being just cut down. He was just undone. You know, he's just totally exposed. And again, it was like guys like the Stokers who talk, whose account of coming up and seeing this ship sinking, you know, right in front of them, you know, that he couldn't explain it. You couldn't explain that away. So he was done. Then you have Captain Moore and the Mount Temple. He got caught. He got pulled in to the investigation, but he slipped through. 
they they for whatever reason history gave him a pass mm-hmm. but the same thing did him in the passengers including doctors and all these people went and talked to the papers and then and so did the crew and then they even took a step further they wrote to the senate committee and sent them affidavits saying this is what we saw you know we saw the titanic and you go on and of course more denied ever seeing the titanic but he also said you know what it's my responsibility to keep the ship safe and i and not to risk it in an ice field so he had it both ways you know he was basically saying i didn't see it but i'm not going to go into the ice field either anyway yeah he wanted his yeah you know so so history didn't he didn't totally get away because there's been like five books on the Mount Temple, you know, which were books that I I read and you know mm-hmm. were in plain sight. So you take those two things, and then you take the third component of the um, the people in the boats, um, and you put all that together, and then mm-hmm. you, know, you have a very different Titanic story. You have a very dark, you know, like I said, some. I mean, it is positive in the sense of this uh, success story of of the wireless operations and this rescue mission, right. which is a the way you frame the whole book as a rescue mission. I think that was a brilliant move, and and so you do have the kind of positivity there. But you're right, it you. And you have a fourth dark element, which is third class, which for the most part has absolutely no chance of making it. Right. No chance of coming up on deck and making it into a boat, except for, you know, obviously some of the women that are brought up. And I think that mythology of these Edwardian males or these Edwardian couples on the deck saying goodbye to each other and these epic moments of heroism, there's a whole nother literal layer you know, <laughs> down below where people are are locked up. People don't know where to go, don't speak English, don't know what's going on, you know, above deck. So I think that your buck does a really good job of remembering to point that out as well. And that there's, you know, 1500 stories that we'll never know because these people perished. A lot of them perished because they were not part of this Edwardian heroism tale that we associate, you know, they weren't on deck participating in this narrative we associate with it. They were living a completely different story on that ship. And I think that gets lost a lot. Oh, oh yeah. Well, I mean, I think it's one reason Titanic is so fascinating to people because it's a, it's a microcosm. It's a snapshot of society at that moment. You had the equivalent of billionaires on the top and you had people who were coming to America, you know, to start their life. Absolutely. With everything they own, with every everything they own, all the money in the world that they have. Absolutely. You know? And, you yeah. know, not speaking English. And, of course, there is no PA. There's no you know, general announcement, hey, we're sinking, go to the top. It's it's for the stewards to tell people. So the stewards all know the first class. And they're like, well, I say all sport. Put on your, you know, life up. And we'll cut up. <laughs> yeah. Uh, to the third class, somebody yells down the hall. And it's worse. They don't understand English. I don't know, can't read the signs. And even if, even if there were gates that weren't locked and you'll never know that all of the answers to that. Right. But even if there were gates that weren't locked, what if they can't read signs? What if they don't know where to go? What if they don't realize the ship's actually sinking? So it's, it's obviously a multi-layered, you know, story there, but you know, what's funny is that I, I always, every guest I have had on so far, the last question I always ask is why Titanic? I always end with, you know, obviously I'm doing this podcast. So for me, it's been a lifelong obsession. And my question to my guests is, why do you think that we can never let it go? It's a quote for the Cameron movie again. (laughs) But 
why can we never let it go? Why do you think that this story, even though there's been, you know, there's shipwrecks even that have taken just as much lives or been just as dramatic. I mean, look at the Lusitania, right? But why is this, why is it this one? Why do you think that this moment in the American story, kind of, so to speak, just will never let its pull on people go? What is it about it that just endures in your opinion? I think because it's a um, snapshot of history at a, watershed moment where the old world was meeting the new world the whole society all society was on this ship there was the very rich the very poor um the class system was in place you had this technology that said they were unsinkable which of course they were not and so you had all that hubris of this this moment of you know we're man and said we you know we've tackled everything we've kind of solved everything and of course captain smith famously said uh in an interview oh you know shipwrecks are a thing of the past but it'll never happen yes i read i i've read that yeah that's pretty you insane know. right so so you have you know essentially so the epoch of this moment in um 1912 where you know everything seems we're in the dawn of a new world right and an old world is receding. But, but in this ultimate turnabout, this ship sinks and takes with it all these people, but also freezes for all time this moment in history of the old world, the new world, the Edwardians, immigrants coming to America, this floating palace, all the ostentatiousness of the Gilded Age crashing up against, you know, human mortality. Tragedy, pathos, bathos, failings. You know, in the end of the book, I I said, you know, I'll just paraphrase it. I said, you know, we, we like to think that you know we would come back on if we were in the the boats around mm-hmm. like both. We would have said, come on, let's go back and get those people. Or we would have, uh, if we were Captain Lord, we would have said, come on, let's go into that ice field and go and go get those people. But the truth is, you know, heroes are a lot less you know, common than we like to admit, you know, the more the exception than the rule on Titanic, uh, you know, and it's also said there's a, you know, there's like a mission now to try and get the wireless room back to the surface. They're trying to bring that up and they want to kind of find out the last message that would be embedded in it. And uh, of course, you know, it's really, it was really, you can drill all Titanic down to a simple question that was asked of the world. Will you come help us? And it's what people mm. continue to ask and is, you know, the answer to that question that haunts us today. You know, it's that's a, a really, you know, gorgeously moving way to put it. And and I know I said that that that, that was the last one, but that leads me into one sure. <laughs> more quick question, which is, is this did you research and write this during COVID? Did you yes. is this so what what was that like, you know? working on a topic like this, being informed by, you know, I mean, you just said that last question, will you help us? I mean, we are very much living through an era where that's the question. And so what, what was that like? You know, how did, how did working on this during COVID affect it? Not only in terms of, you know, the actual material and themes, but also, you know, as a researcher too, like what Mm -hmm. was, were you sort of held back by travel restrictions? I mean, how was that process you well, know, during well COVID. that's a great question because a couple of things. One, I do miss my research online anyway. I mean, okay, you know, a lot of the big guns, Eric Larson and other 
uh, you know, they go cruising all over the world to research and stuff like that. Truth is, you don't have to do that anymore. Um, everything, everything yeah. ties. I mean, it's very romantic. You know, I always read these guys' prefaces and forewords. Like, oh, thank you to blah 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 that took me over blah blah. You know, it's like, well, I could thank the internet, but you know, you know, I know it's it's sort of debunking another myth. But anyway, um, so to me, that process didn't change too much. But I was writing this during the time when they were just getting the vaccine, and it was available to only a few. Mm-hmm. And people were freaking. They were like, you know, dying in droves, as they still are. Nobody could get their hands on the vaccine. People were doing all sorts of crazy things to get it. So what that did for me was it made me understand how the um, people on Titanic felt when they realized there weren't enough lifeboats. <gasps> that see, that's and this is this is my theory. People ask me all the time, you know, why I do this, why I study it so intensely, but. I've never, I've never been able to find a moment that couldn't, I mean, you know, and it's like Titanic is the ultimate analogy, metaphor, mm-hmm. you know, e- example in, in terms of class for sure. Yeah, and when you totally. said that, that light, a light bulb went off in my head. I hadn't even thought about it that way, but you no, have, you're right yeah. back, you're right back on that ship with ac- the, the access to lifeboats, access to vaccines. That's yeah. a perfect parallel. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I, knew. I knew how they felt then. Yeah. Because let's face it. Because it was life and death for a lot of people who didn't access the vaccines first. Totally. So, yeah. Are you kidding mm-hmm. me? People were doing anything they could to get it because get it. Yeah. You know, there was only so much of it. The uh, The pandemic has shown to me a lot of people who cannot really fight for themselves, you know. I mean, you know, when it came down to it, a lot of people could not go out and go get what they had to get because um, they, they weren't used to it. On Titanic, once you realize there's only so many boats, it was up to you to try and get in one, to do what mm-hmm. you had to do to survive. And so that was probably the biggest epiphany of, you know, Titanic for me in writing it during that time was that uh, I know exactly how they felt when they realized there were only 20 boats and that a lot of them, a lot of people would die and that you had to somehow make sure you got into one of those boats or got onto something in that water so you could survive. And so that that was the through line from the pandemic. You know, so undoubtedly it influenced some of the writing, you know, because I was writing it then. Yeah, and it really, I'm having these thoughts kind of like in the moment, but in terms of the pandemic too, I think it mirrors Titanic in the sense that if you are wealthy, and you are able to, you know, travel privately, you know, test as much as you want, be around other people. I mean, it's, you know, the pandemic has essentially been over for a long time if you're the uber wealthy, you know, like Absolutely. you, you're not living in the pandemic anymore if you're uber wealthy. And so it does mirror that too. But if you're just an average person, you know, trying to make it, the, you're very much still in the pandemic and living day to day and and struggling. And so that mirrors it as well. But yeah, I never... Yeah. It's never it's it's the thing that never ceases to give in terms yeah, right? of the metaphors and the analogies. Um well this has been amazing. I as you can see, I didn't even I mean we covered most of the important questions, but I had a lot. So I want to let people know that they obviously need to grab a copy of your book. Okay. Uh, just to reiterate, guys, it's 160 minutes, The Race to Save the Titanic by William Hazelgrove. And um, your website, right, is is it just williamhazelgrove.com? Exactly. 
Okay. And just to kind of get a sense of who you are and some of your many other books, um, they might be interested in grabbing as well. Um, yeah. And so what what's next for you? Are you working on another well, book right yeah, now? Actually a book coming out February 15th. Oh, wow. Oh, let's talk. Yeah. What does that tell well, me? Uh, so we can plug Guild- that too. It's called Greed in the Gilded Age, The Brilliant, okay. the brilliant Con of Cassie Chadwick. Okay. I am not familiar with who that is. Do you want to give us a sure. super brief? Sure, she was a woman brief. who in 1906 beat the 1% at their own game by basically saying she was the illegitimate daughter of Andrew Carnegie. And then wow. she borrowed millions and millions of dollars and lived like a queen for years. And then they caught up to her and they had to try all the century. But she was basically a very smart, self-taught, con woman who destroyed a banking system, destroyed banks, but beat these bankers at their own game. Never signed a loan document, but probably the equivalent of $60 million today. She, Jeez, she I've got- never, I've not, I was not aware. That's amazing. Not a story I'm aware of. So I will definitely be checking yeah, that out. Is it great? The reviews, the early reviews have just been fantastic. Um, and is it pre-order on, can we, yeah, or like Barnes and Noble, Amazon, can you yeah, do a pre-order right for that? Absolutely. Okay. Awesome. Uh, there'll be an audio book too. And um, no, it's, it's very much in line with Titanic too, because it's um, written in the same way and it's of the same era. So it's, you know, that really cool Gilded Age era in New York and, you know, just, but, you know, again, she's a woman who self-taught, undoubtedly a con woman but who created this opulent life, lived on what's called Millionaire's Row in Cleveland, married this doctor telling him, telling Dr. Chadwick saying that she was this uh, heiress from Ireland. And then she hatches her ultimate scam where she goes to Andrew Carnegie's uh, mansion in New York and gets a a very well-connected lawyer to give her a ride. And when she comes out, she goes, oh, I just had to stop and see my father. And this guy does is just double take. And she lets her drop that she's the illegitimate daughter. And she'd written all these sophisticated trusts and everything. So from then on, she could walk into any bank because in those days, bankers would lend on just their perception just, of wealth. If they yeah, your wealth, you they'd give it to you. So she lived this incredible life. And then they had the trial of the century where Carnegie had to go and it actually even eclipsed Teddy Roosevelt's inauguration. And I mean, thousands and thousands of articles on her i mean newspaper that's amazing and i'm and now that i know your writing style and tone i'm excited to read it because this is completely my era i in grad school this is the era i studied you know it's not just titanic that puts me in this era i'm basically like 1880 to 1930 is kind of my time so i'm gonna i'm gonna eat that up well thank you william hazelgrove thank you so much this is i could have talked for five hours. This has been incredible. I really appreciate you coming on. Oh, thank you for having me.